Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. What would your life look like if you never learned how to talk to people? How would you feel about going to a party as a wallflower and sitting on the outside? Now imagine you had the cure to that problem, an inexpensive way to make yourself immediately more interesting and likable, and this is your gateway. You can suddenly have relationships with people, you can explore sex and intimacy. One catch though, it might kill you. And no, this isn't the plot to a new episode of Black Mirror, this is alcohol. Lauren, a severe alcoholic in recovery, joins us today to talk about intimacy and how alcohol can be a gateway to that intimacy temporarily, though she discusses how, while alcohol lifts, in her case, a, quote, oppressive fog of depression, end quote, and brings moments that even feel intimate, in the sober light of morning, it turns out they weren't all that intimate, and it turns out they especially weren't all that connective. When you're disconnected from yourself, it's pretty hard to be connected to others. Content warning for alcoholism, addiction, and abuse. What I'll find is I get so engrossed in the conversation, and I have ADHD, so when I'm, when I'm done, I'm like, great, that was an amazing conversation about what I couldn't tell you. Yeah, I, I, I laughed a bit when you said that because I'm actually in the process of possibly getting diagnosed as having ADHD. It gets so complicated too, because so much trauma stuff can mimic ADHD and it's like, am I just that's, dissociative? Do I have ADHD? It's complicated. That's the trench that me and my therapist are literally next week and last week trying to figure out. Right. It, it all, it all correlates so closely with each other. Yeah, it really does. So are you familiar with the term trauma bonding? Um, I'm familiar with it, but not, it's not something that I've really, truly, I guess, understood. Okay. Um, I, a lot of people have talked about it around me, but I haven't really been like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> That's totally fair. Um, mm -hmm. So trauma bonding, as I understand it, and this is just my working definition. So feel free to Google it if you want more information or you want to hear from someone who's actually, <laughs> you know, trained in this stuff. Um, but as a lay person who's not trained, my understanding of trauma bonding is it's that 
that bond that forms between people who feel a deep sense of validation in seeing and being seen and just sort of that look in their eye that's like, oh, I get you. Like, I really get what you're talking about. Okay. And you sort of add that validation and bonding to a situation where you're talking about some pretty severe trauma shit that just really feels like it's it's followed you and stalked you through your whole life. And they're like, mm-hmm. hold on, friend. I totally feel that. Like, I had a really similar experience. And all of a sudden, this magical trauma bond is made where you're like, oh, this thing that I haven't felt safe about my whole life, I suddenly feel like this person understands and maybe I can be safe with them. Yeah. So in other words, for me, anytime I've ever done MDMA, um, <laughs> um, every relationship I've started. Yeah. Right. And it usually is pretty disastrous. Yeah. So there was a meme going around on Facebook that was like, relationships not built on trauma bonding. Like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> yeah. Because it's like, Ugh. doesn't everybody just like trauma bond with someone and then sleep with them? Isn't that how, isn't that how it works? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then continue to, you know, compromise every part of who you are for that relationship. That's, yeah, of course. <laughs> that's not how you do it? Yeah, I thought that I thought it was all about self-sacrifice and like slowly erasing who you are so that you can stay connected to someone who understands your trauma cuz you know, who else would ever want to be with me and oh my god, I'm such a you know, like that whole downward spiral. Okay. Yeah. No, I am intimately familiar with trauma bond. <laughs> Um, And trauma bonding, for the record, doesn't have to lead to, like, self-effacing abusive places, but so frequently when you're trauma bonding with someone, you're bonding with another traumatized person. And the problem with two traumatized people in deep relationship and relating with each other, and it doesn't have to always be a problem. I'm not coming. Don't come for me and at me on Instagram. I won't. Right. I I mean, I meant that more as a general disclaimer to the audience. Um, But... But it's um, but it can be because you're dealing with people who have similar trauma usually, and mm-hmm. that's so disastrous because usually if people are at least differently traumatized, the ways in which they're not boundaried and the ways in which they struggle to negotiate healthy boundaries and the ways in which they don't have the tools to relate, if there's not an overlap in the traumatization there, you still have a shot at helping each other through the rough points and approaching some kind of health over time. But if you've got an overlap where like your unhealthy patterns set off their unhealthy patterns and vice versa, you are in an echo chamber of hurt. Yeah. And in my case, um, or my experience with trauma bonding that has coincided with um, other addicts. And so you've got another layer on top of that. Of we're both using um, to mitigate the, effects of the trauma right uh we've trauma bonded and now we are (laughs) using together and neither one of us are going to stand back and say hey you know maybe (laughs) maybe this isn't the way to deal with this um you know we're gonna continue to go down that rabbit hole until the end comes uh disastrously in my experience yeah yeah so this kind of ties back into that um skill set of like what what is the skill set right like what is the toolbox what are the tools like i don't know how to approach this i don't know how to talk to people mm-hmm. how did you go about learning how to talk to people so 
with with drugs and alcohol basically um i i didn't know i still don't know how to talk to people i just faked it until it kind of started coming naturally to me um but as a young kid yeah i had a ton of social anxiety um and i was always labeled the weird kid Mm -hmm. and i was pretty much socially ostracized from like kindergarten basically um so as soon as i kind of got into my preteens and i started finding this magical potion that made me um outgoing um and and made it so that i didn't care what the other kids thought about me i was going to do me um that was how i formed the basis of social interaction mm-hmm. and, um that never, that never changed and it, it's funny because Throughout my 20s, when I was doing a lot of the the fun, hard partying, which, you know, at the time might have been fun, but I don't think it ever really was. I think it, mm-hmm. you know, I was hurting um, and just covering it up, uh, even though I was the first to tell you that I was an adult and in full control of what I was doing and I was just having fun. Don't, right. don't, ever, don't ever listen to that, what, especially if I'm saying it. <laughs> if I'm saying it, don't listen to me. I'm full of shit. Um, but a lot of people would say that, like, you're really confident. Like, how are you? You know, I really admire your confidence. Like, you're really funny. You can just talk to anyone. You know, I could just go into any party, not know anyone, and strike up a conversation. And um, that wasn't part of my personality. That wasn't who I was. That was that was the alcohol and the drugs. Um, mm-hmm. That was the persona that I'd cultivated through those substances, through the courage that it gave me. Um so stripping that away, it's like, you know, who who the hell am I? I realized pretty quickly I had no idea who I was. And I'm still putting that together. Yeah. Um, so trying the first couple months of recovery, like I, I went from being this person who could, like I said, walk into any dive bar or any party and strike up a conversation with somebody to somebody who, um, I, I mean, I, I couldn't go to AA meetings um, because I was terrified right. uh, of of alone and having people look at me i was terrified of sharing in treatment i was terrified of um going to safeway and um asking somebody to help me find something i i didn't know how to talk to people and um other than the people who were already in my life but just like you know socially and publicly i i, I had no idea how to live or be um me because i didn't know who that was and i did not know who i was in relation to other people well, there is good news. Mm-hmm. I feel like my 30s, and I think this is true for a lot of my friends who I've spoken to who are hitting their 30s, including ones who are in recovery, including some who have relapsed. Um, your 30s are kind of where you learn to more naturally not give a fuck about what other people think about you. Yeah. So rather than it be something put on, like when I was younger, I also got bullied and I got bullied to the point where I stopped caring what people thought about me because I just felt it was always going to be disastrous. And I really needed to find a touchstone that wasn't social cues. Mm -hmm. And I think what that's led to is something different, but sort of similar in that people think I'm really confident when I'm like, I'm not confident at all. I just, if there's going to be a thing like if I, if I fail in doing this, I'm going to fail under my own merits. Not because, you know, other people think I'm going to fail because they've been wrong most of the time, whether I was a failure or a success, there are people that had a lot of confidence in me when I was like, I don't think you should. And people who, right. Like vice versa. So. 
Absolutely. And I, I do. I, I give a lot less fucks um, these days. Uh, a mentor of mine, um, uh, guy who works in recovery named Brian, he's wonderful. And he always says, what other people think of you is none of your fucking business. Mm, I like that. I love, I love it so much. I want to get it tattooed on me. I won't, but I want to. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's true. And I, and I do... Um, I, I started lessening what what people thought about me, but at the same time, it started intensifying. The more and more I started slipping into my actual addiction, like not having control, mm-hmm. um, I, I worried way more about what people thought of me in terms of do people think I have a problem? Oh, because interesting. I don't want anyone to think that because then I might have to stop, or I might have to confront it, or you know. So then I yeah. start changing all my social circles. I had different groups and I would, you know, oscillate between them so that no one ever really saw me too much so that no one could ever catch on to the fact that I was not in control. Right. Um, and I spent a lot of time worrying about that. <laughs> Funny how social anxiety works. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, but now, uh, as I'm gathering a stronger sense of myself, no, I, I actually don't, I don't care what people think about me. I wouldn't be open and honest about the fact that I'm in recovery and about the fact that I, you know, um, I'm an addict and an alcoholic if I if still was in that same place of caring, um, whatever people, other people thought. Right. And it's, it's really nice. It's a really nice change to live that way, um, and be more comfortable with it. Ah, thinking about medication, because there is a difference between street drugs and medication. Um, Firstly, do you have any experience with mental health meds? Yes. And how would you characterize that experience? (laughs) Just asking. (laughs) Uh, Bad. (laughs) Asking for a friend. (laughs) Yeah. um, (laughs) You know, it's funny. I... uh, (sighs) I was in my uh, addiction. So I had an addiction counselor through the treatment center I went to. Mm-hmm. And he asked me, he, he asked me to do a timeline of um, my use. Right. And he, he wanted me to factor in uh, medications for mental health and any period of time that I would not be drinking or drugging. I was always on these drugs. Right. And so he goes, okay, so you've never had any real clean time then. And right. I'm like, what are you talking about? There's two months where I didn't, blow you know like i was clean right it's like nope nope you were on sedatives sleeping pills and right and uh, two different ssris you you know you've, right. you've never spent any period of time on not on a mood enhancing drug right or alt drug um and that really opened my eyes to the fact that um these these medications um I mean, they're obviously nowhere near as damaging to me in my experience as um, narcotic drugs. Sure. But they changed who I was in a big part. And I was put on my first antidepressant at age 14. Oh, I that, was is, given, that is early. Yes, very early. I was diagnosed as clinically depressed at 14 uh, or 15, I think. 14 or 15. Sometimes I wonder um, how different my life would be if I'd gotten a diagnosis younger because I was clinically depressed and like my first serious like suicidal planning, like pl- a plan for suicide kind of suicidal ideation um, was like was about seven years old. So, wow. yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Sometimes the uh, enormity of that is just like I don't even know how to feel about it. I'm like, I don't know. It was a thing. It happened. Um. <laughs> 
but yeah, there's that, that sense of like, I was angry when I first got my diagnosis for depression at 33. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was like, so a quarter century later, we're talking about it, (laughs) but like, this isn't the first doctor I've told about this stuff. You know, my parents certainly knew, um, you know, teachers knew, like I told a lot of people and we're talking about this 25 years later. It's hard not to be a little angry about that, you know? Oh, absolutely. And it's kind of funny because I feel like our stories are kind of opposite because I was diagnosed at such a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I, I was diagnosed at the same time that uh, my substance abuse started becoming habitual. So <sighs> right. I'm, I, I'm on the other side of the spectrum where what if I wasn't? Right. What if... What if I wasn't diagnosed? Because I lived my life from the age of 14 to 31 thinking that I have major depressive disorder. I have generalized anxiety disorder. There's, you know, I'm an, I need to be on something Medications, to be right. Yeah. And I, I've, in the experience I've had coming through recovery, which, by the way, I'm not on anything and I'm happier. Well, not happier, but I'm more content and at peace than I ever have been in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I trust the validity of any of those diagnoses at this point. Um, and I think the root of my issues were the substances that I was medicating myself with, um, that were blinding me and numbing me to any form of self-work or healing from anything kept me depressed. Right. Um, I do think there's a basis, um, for those diagnoses. I, I definitely have, you know, lived with depression my whole life, but not to the extent that I think um, I should have been medicated for. Yeah. And just a huge part of my personality for a long time. Yeah. Being, being depressed is something that has never really left my life or my experience, but you know, despite anxieties being there, I don't think I have enough anxiety to even qualify for generalized anxiety disorder, but I definitely qualify for, you know, major depressive disorder many times over. And I think when I realized that medication was an option, there were obviously like a lot of hurdles. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of stigma to get through. But once I'd sort of gotten through all of that, um, I'm on half of a clinical dosage of Trintilix right now. And mm-hmm. it's a fucking expensive drug is exactly what yeah. it is, but it makes doing the work of, of therapy manageable. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel in my experience, I was just told to take the pills. Um, and that's, that's you now, and that's how you heal and that's how you're going to live. And I was on uh, the highest possible dose of Zoloft for like, most of my 20s. Wow. Yeah. I, I was given the dose that they give people with bipolar 2. Yeah, like that's, um, that's, that's a lot. Yeah, because every year from the age of 15 on, I was just, how's it going on the pills? Well, I don't know. I don't really feel anything. Okay, well, let's give you some more. You know, because, okay, now at this age, I'm starting to get panic attacks that are putting me in the hospital. And at this age, you know, I'm, I'm on a suicide attempt. And at this age, I am acting out in sexual ways that are extremely damaging. And this is starting to happen. And these things right. are starting to happen. That's causing me extreme mental distress. Well, let's put you on some mood stabilizers. Right. You know? 
that's my experience. I was never able to deal with anything because I was always just being told to take this, numb yourself to it, don't deal with it. I, I was told at 15 that these pills would make me like a duck. The water droplets would just roll off of my feathers and I wouldn't feel them anymore. That really and just, I, that isn't a solution though. I, um, but that feeds into <laughs> the avoidance that we talked about in the first episode where I was happy with that because I didn't have to deal with anything. Like even your medical professionals were really screwing up, giving you the tools yeah. you needed to deal with it. Absolutely. And I had a doctor on top of that that would prescribe me anything anytime I asked for it. My back hurts. Here's some hydromorphone. Which wow. Give to an addict. Um, you know, I have anxiety sometimes. Here's enough Valium to kill you three times over. Um, you know, and that was, you know, I, I could, I, when I got clean, I had to go through my drawer because I had enough sedatives, sleeping pills, and, and, um, SNRIs to take out like 14 wild buffaloes. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't looked back. I haven't wanted any of this. I mean, do I still, you know, want to do narcotics occasionally? Yeah, sure. Do I want to take a sedative? No, never again. I appreciate that you had the number of buffaloes just like ready to go. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, yes. I've never liked sedatives. They've never been... They've never been a thing I've enjoyed. Even, I guess, your drug of choice, alcohol, um, has never really been a drug I've enjoyed, which I guess is a blessing for me. Yeah. My, uh, my drugs of choice were alcohol and cocaine, but um, Pol I had polar opposites. That. Well, they went so well together. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, that is what vital organs need. They need a <laughs> major stimulant. <laughs> <laughs> major yeah. depressive just shoved in them at the same time absolutely. but um you know getting clean i had to deal with the fact that i i absolutely had a pill addiction um and i just took them because i took them there was no real thought process going on behind taking them i just took them because they were there i had them they were prescribed and i took them mm -hmm. and i took them so that i didn't have to feel um mm -hmm. And in the end, you know, the two, the self-medication and the medication, prescribed medication, you know, they they were not interacting well. And it's it's really no wonder that by the end, I really started having major crisis of mental health. I started losing time, um, hours of my day that I couldn't account for and ending up that I didn't know where it was. Uh, that happened twice. And I, I wanted to go to an emergency ward to check myself in because I thought I was losing my mind. That's rough. Yeah. And um, since then, since not taking anything, you know, the level of clearness um, and just that oppressive fog of depression, it just has never been to the same level as it as it has been. So that really leads me to believe that the root of the reason why I was so suicidally depressed was, for me, the addiction. Um so it's like I've redefined myself as a person who is no longer an active addiction, but I've also been redefining myself as a person who is not um, majorly depressed and who doesn't need to be on medication and can actually deal with these mental health issues through meditation, counseling, healthy living. Mm -hmm. And that itself is like a huge, that's huge. Right. Because I've been walking around believing this 
this thing about myself I'd been told by medical professionals my whole life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my trust has definitely faltered a little bit in that sense with um, clinical psychiatrists and doctors. I definitely Um, avoid clinical psychiatrists and doctors when it comes to mental health, and I try and focus on registered clinical counselors instead. And that is where I've found the success that I'm having now, too, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've also found that a lot of counseling, people have this idea that it's going to be like one-on-one counseling and that it's going to be really expensive and neither of those necessarily have to be true. And I know that there's a stigma to some extent about group counseling. People are like, "Ugh, I don't want to go to group counseling. It's sort of like when people say they don't want to go to AA or NA. It's like, yeah, I get it. It's going to be boring, but that's the therapy. Go do it. Yeah. Yeah. And then what you don't realize is that having a fellowship there is half of what helps you. Oh my God. For, so for me, it was almost the, I mean, yes, that was definitely part of it, but the other part of it was realizing how fucked up the other members of the fellowship were and then going, Oh wait. Yeah. I've had that issue. Yep. I've had that issue. Oh, I'm still having that issue. Oh, this person's not still having that issue. Definitely this, you see the spectrum of getting through depression and the group therapy that I had made available to me by coast coastal health for free in Richmond, mm-hmm. BC was split into four parts. And I'm sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to like humble brag about how awesome my counseling was. Is that okay? <laughs> Absolutely. So not that, not that I can claim any credit for it. Um, only the work that I put in, we started out with, so it's six hours a week for 12 weeks which is like, that's a program. You're not just doing like, you're not just doing counseling. You're in a fricking program. And it was three hours, Tuesday and Thursday mornings. And I would go and we would do an hour and 20 minutes per session. And then we would do four sessions per week. We would start with CBT, which was like going to one-on-one counseling with a registered clinical counselor except it was a registered clinical counselor introducing all the concepts you would learn in one-on-one therapy lecture style. Wow. Then we went into interpersonal therapy and it was like traditional group therapy, which was the thing I was most afraid of doing. Cause I was like, I don't feel like I'm going to learn anything from it. I've been in counseling for 10 years. I don't think I'm going to learn anything from, you know, group therapy. And I was wrong. Right. I definitely learned a lot from group therapy and the rules for it were you can bring up absolutely any issue as long as it relates to your relationships with other people. Yeah. Which was so powerful. I didn't realize what a constraint and what a like freedom that was, but it was actually Mm -hmm. really powerful. And I just remember at a certain point, I realized all of my problems were really boring. (laughs) Sorry to laugh. That's just, no, I've I've had, I've had similar thoughts. (laughs) I definitely, I laughed at myself. I had to stop myself from laughing out loud while someone else was speaking in group. Yeah. Like realizing how painfully boring and mundane my problems were took away my story that I was like somehow specially traumatized. Yeah, I think the uh, the term we use in AA is clinically unique or terminally <laughs> unique. At the minute I realized that I was not terminally unique, I really had to drop a lot of my self-victimizing bullshit. 
<laughs> Fuck, that is that is magic. Like, ter- like terminally unique or chronically unique is like just such a great way to just dispel all of that like wounded snowflake shit. As much as I don't like the term snowflake, I'm like it very much is this yeah. like. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, and that's, I think that in itself is a pretty big breakthrough. It was huge. Um, I, I've met some people in recovery who are on their sixth or seventh time around, and they're still at that point. And that's why they keep coming back. Right. They keep going out. Um, I think um, to a to a bit of an opposing point to that, too, yeah. though, at the same time, um, I think if you're, like, your experience and my experience of realizing that we're not terminally unique um is is very good and positive but i think for some people too listening to other people's stories of trauma and addiction stuff and realizing that they don't have anywhere near and what they perceive as bad can keep you sick too definitely yeah there's this whole comparison thing that's super toxic like it doesn't matter what story you have if you're traumatized you're fucking traumatized the point thank you for catching that the point i was trying to make was this idea that being able to let go of the specialness in your story is really important. And it's not something that just happens. It's not like, you know, you go to therapy and suddenly you're like, Oh, I'm not special. It's not really what I mean. I mean to say there's this feeling that you're so uniquely wounded that, that therapy can't really help you properly. Or that there's this feeling of like fatalism. I used to feel that was like, yeah, but we all know that I'm going to die lonely and penniless on the street. Like, that's just how my story turns out. I already know that. I'm a French mime. That's how it's happening. I'm a French mime? <laughs> no, that's just the image that I got in my head. Oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> I'll have to. Anyway. You know what, though? So you just brought up a great coping strategy, which is when you have these inner critic thoughts these feelings that Mm -hmm. are dissociative and catastrophizing and very much related to trauma fears um Mm -hmm. you can slap a funny coat of paint on them and do the harry potter thing with bogarts yeah absolutely so when you think of yourself i'm gonna die alone and penniless on the street just think of yourself as a french mime in a black and white movie from the 20s i mean or you can think of yourself as a master's student one of the two yeah that too <laughs> just like half of my friends just head desked yeah <laughs> but no that that's that's an awesome point, and um, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. I just think that some people might um, not kind of see the distinction between the two. Definitely, and I really appreciate it's you. Walk. Sorry, could you say that again? It's just a really fine line to walk. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I really appreciate you teasing out the nuance there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one thing that you said, too, is um, I, I love proving yourself wrong. I love proving myself wrong. Like when you said like, oh, I don't think I have anything to learn from group therapy and I was wrong. I love those moments. Yeah. Like, it's like I almost love slam dunking on myself. I'm like, yeah, see that? <laughs> wow. Look where you're at now, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I being able to, to being able to stare those moments in the face and be like, thank you for the upgrade and just sort of like accept that this is happening and you need to come to peace with it is real. That, that's a skill. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Um, did you have a little time to talk about, I think you wanted to talk about, um, like intimacy as well. 
Um, let's do that. Let's do that in a different episode. I kind of want to wrap up really quickly talking about counseling and then touch on something you said earlier first. Does that work for you? Absolutely. Sweet. So we also did assertiveness training, which was really amazing. Mm -hmm. Because it sounds like you're just, you're just learning more bullshit, like be compassionate to yourself, which, you know, anyone who is not compassionate with themselves is like, fuck off. Right. Um, So you think like assertiveness training is going to be like that, but instead it's like, Hey, here's what being a passive communicator is like. And here's what being a passive aggressive communicator is. And here is how being aggressive in your communication looks. And like, what would it look like if you showed up to a conversation, spoke your piece without expecting that you were actually going to get any of your needs met and then were able to defend that you had an opinion without needing to convince the other person of your opinion. That sounds so much like working on self-abandonment. Yeah. There are definitely some parallels. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So that was one of the four sessions a week. Mm -hmm. And then I, for the life of me, I've forgotten the third one. Yeah, that sounds like very intensive. And that was free from mental health. Yeah. So like when people are talking about, you know, how expensive um, counseling is, I'm like, it definitely can be for sure, but it doesn't have to be. No. And the best therapy, the best counseling I've received has been free. And like, it just goes to show you that like these services and these people who you can click with and, and grow with are out there and they're not charging three hundred dollars an hour right yeah yeah that's pretty amazing yeah so all in all i'm just really kind of jazzed to be where i am and really grateful that i am where i am and uh hoping to still be in a positive place at this point next year yeah well you know what me too i'm with you i'm in the same boat And if, uh, (laughs) I mean, I'm months into my recovery journey. So, you know, this time next year, I don't know where I'll be. Maybe I'll be on Mars or something. That feels like my trajectory right now. (laughs) Is to be on Mars? Yeah, well, I don't know. The the therapeutic um, equivalent of me going to Mars, I feel like. Right. The way that I've exponentially kind of um, grown in such a short period of time. If I keep at it, I can only imagine kind of like the self-actualization that I'm hoping to achieve. Oh, my God. There's that word self-actualization. What does that look like? <laughs> Who, I don't know. Has anyone ever actually gone there? Like actually self-actualized? I don't think so. Like Buddha, maybe. So how was it, Intimates? Let us know on Patreon or start a discussion on Facebook. And if you want to keep being super awesome, you can help us out by going and leaving us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Social proof like that helps so much. You can also just tap share on this episode and send it to someone you think might like it. Thanks so much for helping build the community and the show. I look forward to chatting with you on Discord or writing back and forth on Patreon. The intro music was Show Me, the instrumental version by Josh Woodward. And this outro music is Arrival by How the Night Came. Thank you so much.